Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Ted Talks podcast. Been a while since I've done interviews, but I am back, baby. And on today's show, we're talking to Andy. Andy invests in rent to rents, HMOs, and single lets. So we talk about his property journey. We talk about how he grew his portfolio to 1.45 million, how he quit his job fairly quickly, and how his first purchase was a HMO. Now, not the most common thing to purchase first, but we'll talk about that. And his second one was a flat, which is leasehold. Again, you know, really breaking the mold here. So yeah. Let's 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 get into it. Oh, but before we get into it, why haven't you booked a free strategy call with me? There's thousands of you listening to this. Yeah, I haven't spoken to thousands of you. So go to Tej Singh, that's T-E-J-S-I-N-G-H dot X-Y-Z or X-Y-Z if you're in America. Um, the link will be in the show notes. Click on it, click the first link and book in a free strategy call. You've got 30 minutes of my time. Let's see how I can help you. Let's see what we can do to get you moving forward. And if I can't help you, then hopefully I can recommend you know, something else to you. In the meantime, check out my community as well. It is growing every single week. uh, And every month you have two hours of live and recorded video sessions with me talking about various topics, talking about builders, insurance, um, solicitors, we've spoken about deal analysis, live deal analysis of one of your deals. And of course, you've got the Discord on-demand chat for any of your property questions. So book in a free strategy call and let's see what we can do. Andy, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Good morning, Tej. Great to be here. It is great to have you. Now, you've been in property for seven years. Now, that, you know, I mean, it's quite a while, you know, I'd, and I'd say compared to a lot of guests I have, it's definitely quite a substantial amount of time. Um, a new investment to rent, HMOs and single lets. Mm. Now, there's a lot here to unpack and I think there's there's the different strategies is something I really want to talk about because you know as you know when people start they get stuck on what strategy to do this that and the other and you know a lot of people don't think about say seven years in the future you know they kind of think oh what am I doing end of this month what am I doing in six months you know like boom 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 and actually I think there's some wisdom you can share with us over this time period and also how the market has perhaps shifted uh from then and any kind of changes you're seeing and maybe any changes you might, you know, have implemented in your business. And I know we're going to talk about, you know, some issues that beginners face and how, you know, we advise people get through that. Um, and also about systemization, which is something I've spoken a lot about on this podcast. It's something I think people still don't do enough of. Mm. Uh, and maybe it's because they don't understand it. So before we get into all that juicy good stuff, what were you doing before property? And then what got you into property? Yeah, so um, I've sort of got a background um, in technology. So um, I did mechanical engineering at university, and then I went a bit around the houses um, working for a couple of TV production companies, uh, one in Plymouth and one in London. Um, But before uh, I sort of left into property full time, I actually worked um, at Sky Television. So I did two years on their Sky Technology graduate program. So worked in different areas of the business, like operations and testing and things before I then... um, my, my role was as a project manager 
So I used to work on things like um, SkyGo and Now TV. Um, and you know, I found very much um, being a project manager is actually quite similar in some respects to property investment because you've got to have a little bit of the you know a lot of people skills. You've got to have the number skills. You've got to have being able to do the here and now and also look into the future. Um, so yeah, working at Sky Television and um, myself and my partner um, have some funds. And uh, the uh, I'm sure this may uh, resonate for a few of your uh, listeners actually, Tej, but it was actually Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, it was reading. That that book and learning about investment income compared to uh, earned income um, that really opened my mind to looking into property investment. Um, and it was after we invested in a house in multiple occupation and a single let um, and sort of saw how that whole process worked um, that I then decided, well, look, maybe I should spend more time on the investment income um, and less time with the earned income. So I actually left uh, Sky uh, in June 2016 and went into property full time. Mm. And, you know, that sort of first purchase or even kind of before that first purchase, you know, everyone in sort of Britain knows, you know, okay, you know, buy a property, rent it out, blah, blah, blah. Everyone knows kind of the top level. But mm. like, how did you learn how and what to do? Or was it purely on the job? So I I always say to um, people that you need to have a basic understanding. So you know what a yield is, you know what an HMO is. Um, and a lot of people like to go into HMOs because of the increased cash flow, but then they have the associated you know, challenges with them in terms of management and tenant turnover, etc. Um, so, you know, myself and Jonathan, we did sort of looking at various areas, both where we were living and that we were living in Richmond, in London, so that wasn't going to work. And then we sort of looked at a couple of other places and then landed on Southampton. Um, that's where I went to university. Um, but, you know, we went on a one day course. We, we, we looked at, um, you know, various trainings um, as well. Um, and, the thing I would say about training and, 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 and all of these courses is that they can't teach you everything. So you have to acknowledge that no matter what the project is, you will be learning on the job to a certain degree. Even a two bed flat that I purchased, there was a bit of a, a quirk around how we dealt with it. Um, so, you know, courses and YouTube are great for giving you those foundations and almost like the language of property. Um, but then there's always a certain element of um, being able to deal with issues and problems on specific projects as you go along. Yeah. And with those first projects, what geographical sort of area did you buy in? Because everyone in the South says, you know, I want to invest close to home, but you know, the yields are crap. Everything's crazy. It's too expensive. And then, mm. you know, I want to go up North, but I don't want to travel and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, how did you decide on a geographical area? So I think, I mean, these were purchased in 2015 and 2016. And, you know, I was, I was living um, in, in Richmond. So it's about an hour and a half to get down to Southampton. So it was, the, the, in terms of area, I always say to people, firstly, you need to decide what are your goals. So buying a property what is that property going to do for you is it going to give you um, a great return through capital appreciation is it going to give you a great return through really high cash flow and then what i say to people is basically try and find the location that is closest to where you live which helps you achieve your goals 
Because sometimes somebody may go onto Facebook and somebody will say this area or that area is the next hotspot. But sometimes you may be making a rod for your own back by going too far away from where you live. So it's almost look at where you live. And yes, that may not work, but then start gradually moving outwards. And eventually an area will come into into your sort of research that will give you the type of deals and the types of properties that work for your goals. Um, I mean, for us, it was always less than two hours away to drive so that I could go and drive somewhere. I could do a day's property and I could drive back um, without having to worry about being really shattered or or having to stay overnight. Um, But different people have different requirements and it's just making sure that you're clear around what they are. I love that. I think that's a really great way to summarize in like two lines there, like how to find the place. It's like start with your goal, (laughs) start with what you want, start with what you need and then the, the distance and and then uh, that's just a really good way to do it because as you said people will just say oh yorkshire uh okay yeah like and it's like well hold on a sec that might be the best place yeah. for you you know great place to invest but it might not be um and then i think people also underestimate like what they or overestimate how much they can afford to buy people don't realize mm. say it's 75 percent as opposed to residentials which can be 90 percent or maybe even more in these crazy times so did you say the, your first one was a single let or a HMO? So the first property that I went under offer on was the HMO. Um, but uh, some of your um, listeners may know about, you know, Article 4 and getting planning to change it into an HMO. So it's a current HMO, but we've got um, a certificate of lawful development on that. But that planning process took ages. So whilst we were purchasing the HMO, it's just so happened that the, the flat both was purchased um, quicker. Um, but both properties were purchased within about four months of each other. And, you know, you're probably buying things there that are maybe not so uh, accessible to beginners. So HMO, which is complex, you know, for things like Article 4, but also physically complex. Mm. Um, And the flat was leasehold, I assume? Yes, correct. So again, buying something which... I hate leasehold. There's just so much. The legal packs for leasehold stuff blows my mind. Even my sister's like, Ted, why are you doing this to me? Yes. So you bought two things that were maybe quite tricky for beginners. Now, with the HMO, was it ready-made or was it it needed a refill? What kind of condition was it in? Yeah, so I think um, in in all of property, you want to look for things that have got an, uh, an opportunity. So it was a current HMO. So that was good. But we could see, number one, it was very tired. It wasn't being looked after brilliantly. Um, But also um, one of the bedrooms um, was huge. And so there was an easy opportunity to add an ensuite. Um, So, you know, firstly, getting the official um, use as an HMO added some value. Secondly, then putting in the ensuite added some value as well. And then sort of tarting it up. And and the good thing about that property was that the kitchen was in a good state. Um, the bathroom needed sort of a, a new floor. So I would call it a light refurb with a bit of added value, which, you know, for my first project um sort of suited us quite well because um the flat we purchased we did all the work ourselves um we've subsequently learned our lesson not to do that <laughs> um but yeah the, the hmo i remember you know we instructed build finding builders instructing builders telling them what he's doing all of that was a big learning um and i remember you know going down to visit the property for the first time and there was suddenly loads of stuff all over the floor and stud partition going up and you know that sort of shock that actually this house is having work done to it um but yeah it's always try and look at how you can add value in some respects because that's where you get you know increased value um for the property itself 
I agree. And, you know, what you mentioned there is like kind of going on site and seeing these things and like, oh, okay, this is, this is happening. And like, it, yeah. and also when you said about telling builders, sometimes it's like people, like when we're starting out, we don't know what we're telling them. Really, you know, compared mm. to sort of right now where we know, you know, we can do a reefer by the like, you know, back of our hand is not, you know, we know it. But at the start, when you don't know anything and, you know, you have no construction experience, you know, you're like, you're kind of telling it's like the blind leading the blind because the builders mm. are irritating and don't know what they're doing full stop and then we're trying to tell them yeah yeah do this do that and we're kind of like uh i think that's gonna gonna work so i think it's important for people to whether it's youtube whether it's paid education whether it's books you know shadowing a bit whatever it is to understand construction um because you want to know what you're saying and not get the wall pulled over your eyes and then mm. what you said about the property kind of being in that like in the middle of a refurb, it's kind of scary when you think when, it's, it's better not to think about it. But when you do, you're like, so I bought this for hundred grand. I'm now spending 40 grand, but we've ripped it to pieces. So it's now actually mm. worth 50 grand um, until I fix it up, which is not an easy month or two of your life. And then it might be worth more. So it's kind of scary that we buy it, devalue it and then increase the value. So there's kind of, people need to understand that process. And like you said, having that understanding is so, so important. Now, this being your first deal, did it work out as the spreadsheet said? Did it work out as you expected? Yeah, I mean, definitely. We, I mean, yeah, within two years, we we got a fixed mortgage for two years, we refinanced it. um, And off the back of the works, plus some market growth and um, we got all of our both refurbishment and deposit funds out of it through a mixture of the capital appreciation and two years worth of cash flow um so it's only a four bed as well um but in terms of the the numbers it performed very well um you know it, it tenants really really easily um and that's why i think even for your first one it will never be your best deal but you know through some form of training or education etc um you can still make sure that it is a good deal um and it's you know part of uh, it not being a brilliant deal is the learning and you can then go and apply that to future projects um so yeah it, it was it was a good deal we're pleased with it yeah fair enough and then the second one was a flat now what made you buy a flat because a lot of people uh, you know don't like flats. I don't like flats. I don't like a leasehold. I don't mind a leasehold house, but I just genuinely would rather have the freehold. What made you buy a flat and how did that deal go? So the first thing is um, now I also wouldn't buy any more leasehold. Um, it just so happened that we had enough cash left over to look at a second investment property. Um, so we went for um, the, the, the leasehold flat. I mean, one thing is that the freeholder of the council, so there's no service charge, there are no lifts, there are no high monthly charges that quite often are a challenge for flats. There's mm-hmm. a very low ground rent, um, so that made the numbers work very well. Um, and, and also in terms of the maintenance and the communication, because it's owned by a public body, the freehold, um, you know, it, we don't have any sort of challenges really around that. Um, but it was. Um, the bones of the of the um, flat were in good condition, so it had previously been rented. The kitchen and the um, the bathroom were in good nick, so you know a little bit of tarting up, some carpets, and new light fittings, um, etc. Um, 
is all it required. Um, and in terms of performance, it was giving us £500 a month net cash flow, um, mm. which we were we were very happy with. Um, that's also managed by an agent. So our HMOs, um, we do the management in-house. Um, but for our single lets, we, we've used a high street um, letting agent. Um, and so it's one of those properties that we've not been in for many many years it's got a long-term tenant um and we only hear about small maintenance issues and the rent dropping in every month Mm. and what what do you think is your biggest lesson or lessons from these first two deals i think well one thing is not to make assumptions so as as an example with the flats i remember that working full-time we did nine viewings on flats in a Saturday um, and you think some flats are going to be amazing and they all look fantastic and you think that's going to be a brilliant deal but actually our assumptions were wrong and it was actually the not very special council freehold flat that was the best performer on the numbers and you know, so one of those lessons is that real um, business investor um, mindset that you need to have um, you know, you're looking at how does this perform? What return does it give me? Is it going to rent? Um, it's all that completely different approach um, compared to looking for your own place. Um, I think the second thing also is always, you know, try and walk before you can run. Um, I always, I was given a fantastic piece of advice from t- somebody that said, always try and change only about 20% compared to what you've done before. Now, of course, you can jump into a lot more difficult deals, but there's a bit more risk around that. So always try and grow and do new things, but do it in a incremental way. So, you know, the flat was some painting and decorating. The HMO was an ensuite and a little bit more work. I've subsequently on my own house done a rear extension. And then our Bristol place was a full-on planning, structural engineer, you know, six-figure refurb budget. So I think always try and grow, um, steadily and walk before you can run Mm, yeah i agree i think people want oh let me do a ground up development you know (laughs) i've not done a single buy to let refurb it's like well hold on mate you have no clue what's happening on any level yeah Yeah. you can learn but (laughs) you know and yes you can pay for some education for it but there's nothing like you know the real experience of doing it um Mm. and i think the bigger projects again people don't realize they take longer they cost more you know, who's paying your wages whilst you're waiting six months of planning, whilst you're doing structural work? What, you know, it's nice to have, you know, kind of property, you know, a portfolio or something kind of beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, now, after you, you bought these two properties, you know, now your portfolio sits about 1.45 million. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the question that people will be thinking is, how did you go from those two to where you are now? Was there a plan? Was it just let's buy whatever's good? What, what was that progression like? So after we had the two Southampton properties set up, um, I then left work. And so we then switched our focus to um, rent to rent. So a relatively quick low investment um, business model. Um, So we went and over a couple of years picked up eight rent to rents again in Southampton. Um, And I think from there, that was a very clear plan, but it also left quite a lot of chaos behind us. You know, we suddenly scaled from four HMO tenants to, I think, 48. Um, And again, I wasn't living in the city, so there was a lot of traveling down there and viewings and all that sort of thing. So then I spent, you know, quite a long time bringing on board a property manager, putting the proper systems in place and all that sort of thing. Um, But it was the other thing is you also run out of your own funds. So the first two properties were self-funded and then it's reaching out and networking and um, 
as you do so well, Tej, building those relationships and, and getting out there um, to then start working with other people. Um, so, yeah, we, we then started investing using other funds. Um, so, for example, our Bristol um, HMO, that was it was a joint venture. We used a private bridger rather than a, a high street bank, um, you know, loans from from work colleagues. So it had a lot involved in it um, and, and sharing your message, sharing your journey, letting people know what you're doing is so important when you are looking for people who you want to invest with you because they need to know that you're doing the right thing, that you're actively out there. Um, so there was a lot of that over sort of the property journey as well. Um, and, and from then, um, we've, we've, we've bought more properties. Mm. And then, you know, you invest in single lets, HMOs and rent to rents. So, Obviously, you know, you're buying these properties, you're building a portfolio. Why do you have rent to rent? So at the moment, we're not actually acquiring any more rent to rent. So we've got our current ones, which are rolling off. I mean, to be fair, I expect within the next 12 months, they will they will go back to the to the landlords. Um, but at the moment, it's, a, it's purely the focus on the single lets um, and, and managing the HMOs we've currently got. Okay. And then the word systemizing or systemization <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of property developers investors you know are, are probably working alone or with a business partner or maybe you've got some vas you know that it, usually it's not like a business that's not a bad thing necessarily i i run mine like that. i don't want any staff you know it's, it's a business but i'm the business as yeah. such how you know what does systemizing what is systemization and like when and how do you start so I think that systemization quite often can can make people run for the hills. Certain people are aligned to doing it and they're happy doing it, and other people, it, it, you know, puts the fear in God, of God into them sometimes. Um, I mean, for me, systemizing is anything that enables you do to do something quicker, to be able to outsource it, to be able to reduce errors. Um, that it, it can really just help you to do things better or for somebody else to do it better. So a really simple example is like a viewings checklist, because if you just wander around a house, um, you know, quite often we can get swept up in, in how it looks and, you know, the carpet and the wallpaper and those sorts of things. And there may be certain um, items that we want to go and make sure that we, we um, look at as we do a viewing. So if you've got a checklist, you're almost like outsourcing doing that viewing to a piece of paper. So you can make sure that when you go around, you look at the boiler, you know, you look at the fascias and the soffits, um, you look at the consumer unit, um, and it's just outsourcing something and, and reducing errors. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated apps. It doesn't have to be, you know, tens or hundreds of staff um it's just helping you to do things in a more structured way i think i'd phrase it um in terms of when to start i mean i i really like uh, the approach of having like a templated mindset so when you go on to right move to look at some properties what are you looking for you know, you're not looking for the done up brand new houses, you know, because they, they won't fit your model. Maybe you're looking for the probates or looking for the development opportunities. You know, we all have certain um, ways of thinking and doing things. And if you're conscious of how you do it, you could then potentially give it to somebody else. Um, you know, the same way as analysing a deal. I'm sure that, you know, people don't start a brand new spreadsheet that's blank every time you analyse uh, a deal. There's a template where you can plug in some numbers and then you can easily get the answers out the other end. 
Um, so yeah, people shouldn't be um, intimidated by it. It's just sort of reflecting, you know, where can they quickly make a difference in their business? How can they speed things up or reduce errors or give it to somebody else? Um, and uh, I'm happy to have conversations with anybody who may uh, need help with that. Hmm. And it's a really good point, actually, something as simple as that, because the amount of people who will walk around a viewing and then you might speak to them afterwards or, you know, in a mentoring session or a networking event and say, oh, you know, did you look at this? Did you look at that? What was that? Oh, uh, no, I don't know what that is. What do you mean? What do you... Mm-hmm. Like, Hold on a minute. You're going to go home and price up this, you know, this refurb, this deal to analyze it, to offer on, to spend your money on, spend investor money on. But you haven't looked at, you know, the RCD box. You haven't looked at, has it got a boiler? You haven't looked at the fascia, like, you, you know, these things that can cost thousands of pounds or at least a couple hundred quid or at least enough that it will, it's still an important part of your refurb. And yeah, p- people need to do that. And I think over time though, like you may find that yeah, you don't do it as much anymore. You may find, you know, after a hundred viewings, you're like, I don't need a checklist. You know, I can sort of walk in. I'll remember everything and I'll be able to price the refurb up there. And then, you know, like I find myself doing that now and I've done that for a while. And I think you're probably the same. Mm. If you're the kind of person who needs that checklist until, you know, keep it going. Um, but it definitely, definitely helps. And I think even when you say having a conversation with an investor, even having like a checklist, like, okay, well, I need to ask these questions. I need to convey these points, you know, make sure when you're on that call, you're kind of going through them. Um, and you know, Ernie, do you think systems can benefit everyone or do you think there's some people who are just better, they're not systems people? Well, I think, yeah, the, the first thing is being very clear around systems. It can be really, really simple. But also people think that well, if I put loads of systems around my life, I'm going to lose my creativity. But by putting systems in place, it goes and enables creativity. Because, for example, if you know that you go and pay all of your invoices at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. They're not spread throughout the week as and when you feel like doing it. You've put a bit of structure in place to say that in a time window and it frees up your mind that you don't have to worry about invoices for four and a half days out of the week. Um, so just a little bit of structure, but also it gets things off your plate. You know, I mean, I've got four VAs. I've got two property managers. Um, and But I can only do that because of putting some structure around how they operate um but you know imagine what it would be like if i had to put all of their workload back onto me i'd have no time for growing the business i'd be in the minutiae and the the day-to-day noise um which instead i give over to them um so i think you know systemization as a concept you know has lots of different um there's lots of different scales to how much you want to do it and you can do lots of very complicated things with apps and all sorts but you know at a very basic level um it can just go and speed things up um, and enable to people to do things um with with less less errors um and to go and you know just um, take advantage of the low-hanging fruit um in their business yeah I, I agree and you know there's that saying um discipline equals freedom i think mm. it is and it sounds a total opposite because you're like hold on a minute how am i free if i have to get up at this time do this do that do that but that's exactly why we're free. Um, it's what you said. It just frees up time to do other stuff. So even if you're like a creative person who's like keeping it flowing and, you know, want your creative juices going, if you're not like systemized like this and things are not maybe scheduled or like placed in in a certain way, you might just find yourself just 
running around in the ether, like you said. Um, and I found myself there as well without systemizing. So, you know, I try and do it on a daily, like, you know, paying invoice at a certain time, mm. doing, you know, uh, reading at this time, doing this type of work before this time, doing podcasts on Monday and Tuesday only. And then, you know, so it, it definitely makes sense. Um, Sorry, Chad, just to jump in very quickly, the, also a great book recommendation on this is the E-Myth Revisited. Um, so E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, it, it, it teaches you how to think of your business like a franchise as you go and give over little pieces of work to other people to free you up to do the running the business type work. So, yeah, if people are interested in a little bit more of the approach, that's a very good book. The E-Myth. I'm sure I've listened to that or... Maybe I fell asleep because I, I'm, sure, I'm sure I've seen the cover on my Audible, but yeah. I don't remember it being like what you described. So I'm going to have to re-listen to that because that cool. sounds really interesting. And I think, yeah, if we change the mindset and we reframe it, it's a lot easier than kind of, oh, I'm having to give up my business, having to trust other people. It's kind of, it's a, it's a different way of looking at it, which I really like. Yeah. So, you know, some of the challenges that you and I both hear from, you know, people who are new, you know, you hear it from your mentoring and coaching. I hear it from my mentees and my community mm. is probably money is one of the things that I always, always hear about. Um, usually it's lack of, uh, no one's ever come to me and said, I've got too much money, Ted, can you help? Um, if that is you though, you know where I am. Uh, <laughs> You know, when people say that to you, Andy, and, and, you know, I suppose, that, you know, in your own experience, when you said, you know, first two deals are funded by us, and then it sort of ran out. And this is a, this is a broad question. So you can answer it however you like. If people haven't got enough money, or they're running out of money, but they want to do more deals, what do they do? Where do they get money from? So I think the first thing is for people to check in with themselves around how they view money. Because if you view money as a scarce resource, you know, we get fed these lines from our parents that money doesn't grow on trees. Um, that mindset makes it a lot more difficult to go out and find money. And I have been through this journey. It is a challenge that I have had to overcome um, because you know our beliefs direct our actions. So if you don't believe that there is money out there, you won't take the actions that you need to to find it. So, for example, this evening, I'm going to an event in London with, with uh, lots of high net worth individuals because I now believe that the people that I need to find are out there. It's just up for, to me to take the actions that I need to. Um, so if you are struggling with um, with with funding, um, the first thing is to be very clear on what you can offer other people, because ultimately um, money is offered in exchange for value. So if you are going to go and invest somebody's money into a project, you need to be very clear what that project is offering to an investor. Is it a a 5% return you know, through a loan? Are you offering them equity and that they can go and um, build a portfolio? And getting absolutely rock solid in your communication um, about the service that you offer is really important because, you know, you go to networking meetings and, you know, people say, oh, I'm looking for some investors. All right. That doesn't resonate with anybody in the room because sometimes quite often people don't even think of themselves as an investor. They think of themselves as a person who has some money in the bank. You know, an investor is somebody who's in Canary Wharf, perhaps, or, or something like that. Um, and I changed, you know, 
my offering and how I present myself in, in um, networking meetings to say that I help busy professionals to build their own property portfolio hands-free. It's a very clear strap line. It resonates with people. And I've had a lot of success with people coming to me because of that. So if you know your listeners get very clear on what they're looking for and how they can help other people, um, that's the first thing. Um, secondly, I would say that people just need to put themselves in the right environment. So, you know, business is not done sat at home on your laptop. Um, you know, we can do the social media, we can go and broadcast to people. So that's a good thing. But ultimately, it's down to relationships. Um, so get out there, put yourselves in the right sort of environment, whether it's communities, um, like with yourself, Tej, whether it's um, networking meetings, um, even just catching up with friends and family. You know, there are people out there that you can help. Um, and, and, and thirdly, you do need to make yourself visible. You know, there's a great book um, called Show Your Work. And although it's tied to, you know, people building products online, you know, if you just demonstrate on social media that you're going on a viewing, if you demonstrate that you are analysing a deal, um, it's amazing how many people come up to me and say, wow, you know, I can see that business is going really, really well just through my social media um, posts. And I I, I fully um, recognise that for some people, um, it can be a massive, massive um, challenge. And a lot of my coachees um, want me to work with them on getting over that fear of social media. Um, But ultimately, it's a one to many, many people for you to go and broadcast what you're doing, how you can help other people. um, And um, people then start approaching you because property um, is a very, um, it's accessible. People know houses. They think they know renting. It's not, you know, NFTs. It's not cryptocurrency. So for a lot of people, it's quite easy for them to have a conversation with you about it. Um, So yeah, just be really clear on your service. Make sure you communicate and put yourself in the right environment. Yeah, I agree that the money mindset is, I mean, is the only place to start really, because if you're not, believing that and I think also to add to that if you're not believing that you can raise money and you're not worthy of raising money because oh you know I haven't done this I haven't done that then you ain't gonna raise it because when you speak to people it'll come across in your communication it'll come across in your body language and your confidence in your tone of voice everything so it's important to bring that confidence from that internal belief that you know I can do it and I will do it and you know, there's money everywhere. Like, you know, the room you're going into, there'll probably be millions, maybe if not more, you know, mm. the average property room, even though most people are probably there to raise money. You know, when I used to run a networking event, we used to do a poll um, asking how much money people had to invest. And yeah, people could lie, but every time there was three, four, five million in the room. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's just one room in one evening with, you know, 80 people in now. There's lots of rooms like that. There's lots of online rooms, you know, like that. There's lots of people on Instagram and Facebook like that. So, you know, money is definitely, definitely out there. Um, What's another issue or challenge that you hear from people? I think mindset is just such a big part of property investment. You may have heard of the, you know, the phrase knowledge is power. And I always slightly counter that to say knowledge is potential power because you can watch all the videos, you can have all of the course, attended all the courses. But if your mindset is not in the right place, you won't apply your knowledge. Um, And 
you know, houses, they're expensive, five, six, seven figures, um, dealing with other people's money. Um, there's so many mental char- uh, challenges around property investment. And I think that's why um, you only know what you know. And mentors and coaches are that external view on how you operate as a person, because we have loads of default behaviors. And, you know, I recognize them in myself as well. So maybe it's being a bit too pessimistic or maybe it's not doing enough due diligence. Um, and you know, we do what we've always done very often. Um, but working with somebody else is a great way for them to do an evaluation of what you're doing and then to go and suggest a different way. And it's, it's, it's understanding your default behaviors and why you're doing things and then going and and changing them so that you perform better because you know bob or or susan how they are in their regular job role is not necessarily the type of person that they need to be to be a successful investor um you know how i was as a project manager at sky i'm in a very different place and i remember you know going to my first networking meeting and i'd never done it before and sort of sat in the in the middle of the room didn't speak to anybody and sort of scuttled out at nine o'clock um you know whereas now i I, i've run networking meetings i've spoken in front of, of hundreds of people um so it's just making sure that you are growing and challenging your mental models um so that you can take on these projects and and be successful um and and keep growing as a person yeah and any books on mindset that you recommend for people yeah there's one um well uh, there's a there's an author called dr benjamin hardy um and he has some really really good books that the main one uh, that i like is personality isn't permanent uh, we can actually decide who we want to be in the future and then we can take actions that take us towards that future self um so you know if you want to be somebody who can run a marathon you have to start thinking that you are able to achieve it um so yeah Ben Hardy, personality isn't permanent. Uh, he also has another book um, going back to the systemization called Who, Not How, and that the more successful we get and the more work and the more challenging projects that we do, rather than thinking, how do I do this myself? We need to think, who can I use to help me on it? You know, we're not architects or accountants or structural engineers. So as we get onto bigger projects and more advanced projects, um, we have to learn about who to use rather than how to do it ourselves. Really good book, that Who Not How. Um, and he's, I think that him in, because uh, he doesn't even write his own books, does he? He gets his mate to write them all because um, he outsources everything. Um, <laughs> the the Gap. Where is it? Yeah, The Gap and the Game. Yeah. Such a good book. Um, and they write so well about, about how we think about our success and our progress. And I think as entrepreneurs, as property investors, like being in the gap versus being in the gain is 99% of us. And it, that book can really change, especially, you know, people starting out, we both see this, that people are struggling. Like, Oh, you know, why am I not achieving what you did in this many months? You know, why is it mm. taking so long? And like viewing things in the game, not the gap, um, makes a big, big difference to how we progress, I think. And also who, not how, I think, you know, if people are questioning outsourcing or systemizing, like read this book and, <laughs> It just, I don't know, it, it totally, I knew about it anyway, but it totally changed 
how I view it and how I outsource things. And literally anything I have a task now, I'm like, hmm, who can do this? Is Am I the only one or can I message my VA? Can she do it? Like, or yeah. hmm, do I need to find someone to do this? Like, or who do I know in my network? Like, as opposed to, uh, okay, how am I going to do this? Where am I going to fit it in? Mm, okay. So, you know, certain books, especially their books, really can make like a solid impact um, on people. And um, is yeah. there a technology app or bit of software that you can't live without? So with software, um, I think firstly, just be careful of recommendations. So I will go and say what I use, but, you know, different software resonates with different people. I mean, within our business, um, every task goes into Asana. So that's a big part of with my property managers and my virtual assistants and with myself. Um, Asana is our project management, task management system. Um, we also, I'm very clear that I loathe emails. Um, so for me, um, you know, it's easy for things to get lost and, you know, it can be very noisy in terms of trying to track um, different pieces of information. Um, so emails for us are, are really just used for external communication. Um, but internally, we use Slack as our, our communication tool. Um, and something else that I find very useful um, is a little app or plugin called Freedom. Uh, and that just allows me to block certain distractions, so whether it's Facebook or Twitter, for certain periods of time so that I can knuckle down and do some deep work. Um, so it's sort of, again, outsourcing um, my subconscious that wants to just quickly go and get a bit of a dopamine hit by looking at social media. Um, so it pops up um, and tells me, get back to work. So, uh, yeah, that's another thing that I'd recommend, Tej. And that's a Chrome extension, did you say? Uh, it's, uh, I think you can get it for Safari and for Chrome, and you can get an app for your mobile as well. So you can't even go onto your mobile device and access them. So, uh, yeah. And it's called Freedom, you said? Freedom, correct, yeah. I like that. I think that's, as much as we all say, oh, yeah, you know, we, we focus and we do deep work. And, you know, again, a really good book, Cal Newport, called Deep yep. Work. Um, I feel like most of us don't. So something like that would be, very very useful um because again the benefits of deep work i think in property sometimes you kind of struggle to see where you could do deep work because you're like well waiting on a solicitor to email me you know i've got the builder doing this it's quite i find it naturally to be quite shallow work versus mm. you know being a um, software developer or a designer but when you do get into deep work it just it's unmatched like the feeling of being in it and the feeling when you're done and the exhaustion, which is like a good thing, because you're like, bloody hell, that's actually, I'm actually working. Like, what the hell have I been doing <laughs> years before? Um, so deep work is definitely a big thing that, yeah, I think we all need a little bit more of. Um, yeah. You know, you have a portfolio, you know, you're financially free, as as people say. Um, you've kind of done what I suppose most people want from property, which is building a portfolio, having income coming in that you don't have to necessarily work for. I put that in, you know, speech marks. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you've quit your job and kind of life's cool. So what's next for you? What's the next challenge? So I think for me, it was always around building a scalable business. So now, you know, we're working with other people who uh, want to build a portfolio, um, but they don't have the time, the knowledge, the contacts to do it themselves. Um, so that's why it's we're building a scalable uh, business, um, 
to go and help other people. Um, and I've, I'm now in property full time, um, but it's also to go and get my partner out of work as well. Uh, he keeps getting a promotion. So um, <laughs> I have to keep covering more and more income, um, which is not a bad thing. Um, but the, the goal the goalposts keep moving. Um, but yeah, so that's uh, that's the two focuses uh, at the moment. It's helping other people and also continuing to increase our uh, financial position. Mm, okay. And any goals, you know, in your personal life, running a marathon, you know, doing a tough mud, I don't know, traveling the world, anything like that you're looking forward to doing? So I do absolutely love uh, traveling. Uh, I went traveling for seven weeks around uh, Asia um, a few years ago, which was uh, amazing. And it's very life affirming, you know, being able to experience other cultures and uh, food and other things. So I, I would love to do a six month um, travel um, and, you know, explore um, far and wide, um, yeah, around the world. Nice. And, um, you know, with property, it's very slow. It's mm. archaic at best. Um, mortgage lenders seem to be based in the 70s with, you know, the way they behave and ask for everything on paper. What are some things, there's two questions here, actually. The first one is, what, it, what are some things that you think need to change about property in England, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the, the 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 whole approach um, around conveyancing and around um, the land registry. Um, I think I did a remortgage, and about nine months later, I've had the the, the deed through with the updated details on it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's it's been exacerbated by by COVID and other things, um, but but not just the conveyancing, but also planning. I mean when we did our Bristol place, um, you know, they say you'll get an answer within 12 weeks. I don't think they even looked at it until 12 weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. And then they have all the questions after it's gone past the deadline. Um, So, yeah, I think there are, there are some real challenges both around process, um, but also around policy as well. Um, I mean, I've seen it with with all of the, not getting political, but just some of the, the, the comments on Greenbelt, you know, some Greenbelt that's designated as such, um, really should be open for development because it's scrubland and it's it's you know it's um, it should be brownfield. So I just think that there's um, a lot of challenges um, around policy uh, process um, that that would make lives easier for so many people, whether it's tenants, whether it's developers, um, even investors. Um, I think there's lots of opportunity for things to improve. Yeah, definitely. I think every element of property really is just. <laughs> yeah so backwards stuck in the past and it's so slow and you know there's so much technology like the world is on blockchain and crypto and and you know web 3 and property's not even in like windows 98 level yet it's just like you know what, <laughs> Still in what is, yeah exactly yeah it's like fax machines like what like i've never yeah. checks like what the hell is this stuff like landridge you know you got to send them a check and you you got to send them like a pound coin and all this nonsense and it's like mm. what the hell like this is not the planet I signed up to live on. Like I don't, I don't, I don't understand this business. Um, so Andy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, if people want to get a hold of you, they want to check out what you're doing or just have a chat. Where is the best place for them to go? 
Yeah, so um, firstly, you can check out my website, which is www.asset, so A-S-S-E-T-living.com. Um, and there's a link where you can book a, a 15-minute chat with me, so I'd love to go and chat. Um, also, I've got a YouTube channel, which is more around the productivity side of things, so just search for Andy Gort, um, or also I'm on uh, Instagram as well, under Andy Gort. Amazing, Andy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Tej. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.